I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 173. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies, and men's experiences of pleasure. And today I have the pleasure of chatting with Yale Rosenstock Gonzalez. She is a queer polyamorous neurodivergent uh, Neurican, which is a Puerto Rican New Yorker, a Jewish pleasure activist, a term popularized by Adrian Marie Brown, who believes that sexual wellness and sexual liberation involve our whole selves. In her coaching and educational offerings, she centers identity, values, and social positioning work, playful exploration, and intimacy with self and others. She is the founder of Kaleidoscope Vibrations, LLC, a company dedicated to supporting exploration and creating spaces for individuals to find community and belonging in their identities, and Sex Positive You, which adds to Kaleidoscope Vibrations work by centering sex, sexuality, and intimacy. She is the author of An Intro Guide to a Sex Positive You, Lessons, Tales, and Tips, and is a sex writer for The Buzz by Pure Romance. Yale is also currently a curriculum strategist, facilitator, and coach with the Center for Ethnic, Racial, and Religious Understanding, and a health behavior doctoral student with the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at IU Bloomington. Her research centers the nuances of identity and power in topics of sex, consent, desire, pleasure, embodiment, agency, and partnering styles with a particular interest in Latins as a population that is underserved within sex-positive work. And you can find Yale on her website, which is yalerosenstock.com. That's Y-A-E-L-R-O-S-E-N-S-T-O-C-K.com or on Instagram at yalethesexgeek. That's Y-A-E-L. T-H-E-S-E-X-G-E-E-K. And Yale's also over on Twitter at Yale the Sex Geek as well. And the two of us talk about body shame, internalized body shame, as well as the shaming that we might receive from others. Uh, we speak about our experiences with that. We also talk about how that hinders our capacity for pleasure and offer some practical advice for overcoming that shame and exploring pleasure in your body. And then we talk about the fetishization of bodies and where there is a line drawn possibly between fetishization and body worship and how you can learn to navigate when you might be fetishizing someone or feeling fetishized yourself versus when you are engaging in appreciation and adoration and admiration for someone's body. So yeah, nice and nuanced territory there. But it was a really interesting conversation and it was so lovely to to connect with Yale and I really enjoyed it. So I hope you enjoy listening. This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is so you can understand some of the things we're talking about. At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies fit together in a wonderful way. At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, she sometimes desired the more solid comforts of her husband Pierre's cup. Awesome. We can dive in. And the way that I like to start is with a little invitation. It's an invitation for you to share three things. Who are you? What do you do? And what are you really passionate about? 
I am Yael Rosenzak Gonzalez, a salsa dancer, a pleasure activist, sex coach. I am a traveler. I am a Puerto Rican Jewish New Yorker. I'm all sorts of things. I am here because of all the, the ways in which my ancestors fought to be in these spaces. And I'm also someone who's neurospicy and don't remember the other two questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for letting me know. Uh, well, one of the, the major questions was, um, what are you really passionate about? Oh, I'm very, very passionate about pleasure and sexuality and people being able to experience the level of liberation that is available to them through those things. Because as someone said in another podcast, and we've talked about, or I've talked about before, uh, within a society, there's only so much access you have to liberation and anti-oppression because the society has structures built to create them. So, but trying to help people access their authentic selves, their comfortable selves, and the ways in which they want to be with one another, that gets me very passionate. People's ability to have rights. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for for speaking into that. And there's something here that I wanted to, I'm just curious about, I suppose, like how is your your experience and identity i suppose like you kind of mentioned a few things there that have contributed to your your identity and how you show up today how is how is those things or that milieu of things both contributed to and hindered your experience of pleasure it's funny my dissertation right now that i'm working on is looking at latinas well specifically puerto rican cuban dominican experience of bodies, messages, fetishization, and sex and sexual pleasure. And that comes from my own experiences of being fetishized and the ways in which that looks different depending upon if I'm being fetishized by people who have similar identities to me or different and the way that that impacts my pleasure. And so I'd say in some ways, because I grew up, I'm a very white Latina, I grew up feeling like I wasn't Latina enough. And so when people would compliment my butt, and would compliment my waist and my shape and say, well, now I see it. I see the Caribbean in you. That made me feel valid. And so it would give me like this access to pleasure and that I was like, I am real. I'm valid. My sexuality lets me know that I get to exist in this space. And the flip side, there are other ways in which it was like, oh, this, this can also feel quite icky <laughs> and can take away because now it's like, where's the line between being complimented and revered and worshipped versus being fetishized in a way that is harmful to me and dehumanizing. And I think there's a lot of nuance there, but I'd say that kind of stuff. And then also the the fact that like I grew up with a lot of gay men around. My father founded a, a performing arts theater. So a lot, all of my uncles were uncles were gay men. And so I knew what being gay was, and I was com completely comfortable with that. But as a queer woman who is attracted to men as well, I just like didn't know where I belonged. And I spent so much time not experiencing what I could have been experiencing because I didn't think I counted or that I'd be taking up space somewhere that I shouldn't be taking up space. And so I'd say that that I missed out on certain pleasures just because of my own obsession with, am I enough? Mm, yeah, yeah. I experienced and and still experience, I suppose, like a similar story around my masculinity, right? Like my you know, I've shared about this on the podcast before. My my experience growing up was like I was never and never really have been like quite muscular. I'm quite tall and lanky. And part of my insecurities around my masculinity is like not being 
validated as masculine enough because I'm not muscular or I don't have like that particular frame. And so I, you know, had a lot of resistance to going to the gym, for example. And I've only just for the last six months really started actually going quite regularly. And that's been like a pretty liberating experience for me personally, because it's helping me work through the childhood, not trauma, maybe little T trauma, you know, around like being told that I was weak or any other derogatory slur you can think of for, you know, women and gay men, essentially. So like, you know, working on that has been really helpful for me and, and yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but I, I think like there, there is a, <laughs> there's like something here around, you know, our relationship with our bodies, right? You know, my, my, and you know, to, to kind of guess, like expand upon what I was sharing, like that negative relationship that I had with my body, like that shame about not being enough definitely hindered my experiences of pleasure. Like, and, and the things that I wanted to do sexually, either by myself or with other people, like was definitely hindered by like, why well, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not masculine enough. I can't do that. I'm not muscular enough. Are they, they're going to, they're not going to like it. I'm going to be weird for doing that. Things like that really played into my yeah, fear at the end of the day and insecurity around experiencing pleasure and seeking out pleasure. There's my, a lot of other things as well, but particularly like that relationship with my body was, was part of it. Yeah. I don't know. I was just going to leave it there. I didn't really have a question at the end of that, but just wanted to just put that in there and see if you had any thoughts. Yeah. I think most people have some, at least one, if not like 12 <laughs> narratives like that, where there's something that made them feel like they weren't enough. They didn't count. They didn't see themselves as valuable or deserving of being in certain spaces or certain experiences. And I actually like that is my like bread and butter for most of the people I work with and probably half of the workshops I end up hosting uh, for other people is around how do we kind of dissect, identify, dissect and rewrite the shitty narratives that we have internalized, whether or not, you know, we made them up ourselves or because like you were saying, like kids were calling you names. And so that was certainly coming from outside and the importance of going, like working through that so that you can then experience as you like liberation from it, that you can experience more connected, embodied, pleasurable sex and other things, right? Cause that, that kind of label, that kind of feeling and narrative weighs you down in all sorts of ways besides sexuality. Mm. And and there's something that I that you mentioned which I would love to speak a bit more about. And I want to try and like slightly relate it to the conversation we're kind of already having. What you mentioned was like the nuance between worship and fetishization, like the that kind of like overlap. And you know, if I think about with regards to like my own reflections around that is like, you know, as I as I hit the gym and as I lift heavier weights. Like I noticed myself putting on a bit more muscle. I noticed like my, the fetishization of my own body, essentially like my attraction to my own body is like, Oh, I, I like looking a little bit more muscular. I like having a bit more definition and like reconciling that with like, but I should just love my body. I should just like accept and acknowledge and honor and worship my body for, for in whatever form that it is. But I also, I really enjoy this part of my body when I work out, right? And I've got a pump going and I can check myself out in the mirror. Like there is a little bit of like, oh, that feels really nice to specifically focus on that particular thing, right? And, and almost maybe like fetishize it in a little way. And 
you know, I haven't necessarily spoken to my partner too much about this, but she's also being like, said things to me, be like, Hey, I really, you know, you look really good when you're working out. Like it's, you know, I've noticed a shift in your body. And so like, so there's like, a, there's a piece there of like, yeah, there is self-acceptance and, and like, there is a piece of like acknowledgement of, yeah, I just love my body for the sake of it being a body and having gratitude for that. And then also there is these specific things that like, I specifically like about my body. And then when I think about other people, it's like, well, there maybe is also, there's something there as well, right? Like with regards to certain things that you find attractive of other people, certain body parts that you're, you're specifically find more attractive than other body parts or types of bodies. And so I'm curious around like unpacking that a bit more because I think, yeah, without going into the nuance, people might, yeah, f- so not nuanced. fully, fully, compa- yeah, you <laughs> fully com- uh, comprehend it. So yeah, I'm cu- I don't know. Again, no question there specifically, just more so like, yeah. would love to hear what your thoughts are on like that worship and, and fetish. Yeah. So I, I think it's incredibly nuanced. And we talk, um, when we think about like fat justice work, fat liberation work the concept of wanting to diet, the concept of wanting to change your body is fat phobic, right? It is shaming of bodies. But I do think that it is different to enjoy things that you are noticing about the shifts in your body, even if they it's because they align more with standards of beauty than it is to say, I like I'm dedicating myself to this thing. And I think that just also, you said should, right? Like that you should love your body. And I think that it's often harmful in the way that we are taught to shame ourselves for the things that are going through our heads that we've been taught to put through our heads. So we are constantly being bombarded with certain images of what isn't, isn't considered attractive. And so it makes sense that we internalize those images, that we internalize the concepts and that we have difficulty then separating ourselves from that. And so I am someone who loves my body. I really, truly do. And also not every day do I like, am I excited by every part of it? I sometimes get surprised. Pictures can freak me the fuck out and can wreck me. And I've done a lot of work on trying to undo the fat phobia that was instilled in me from my family. And I think that like, I I don't, I do work out, but I never like see body differences from it. It's more about like mobility, but I love that. I love when I feel stronger. Right. And it's not because I am trying to purport anti-ableism on myself. Right. When I'm stronger, I have less body pain. And that's exciting. It's exciting to have less body pain. And it is exciting to be able to pick up heavier things. And it's exciting to be able to, you know, climb higher and to do those things that I and I think that it's okay to celebrate and that that's the key. Like you get to celebrate the things that you were excited about, that you not do it in a way that then shames others who are not and don't do it in a way that then shames you if something happens. Like if you get injured and you're no longer able to go to the gym, how do you build yourself up so that you're still excited about your body? You're still loving yourself. And now it might get softer. It might get smaller. Like those things can go hand in hand. I think with fetishizing that has to do more with like, what are the structural things that exist. And so like, are you being fetishized because you have dark skin? Are you being fetishized because you have light skin? Are you being fetishized because like your eyes are a certain shape or the height that you have or the size of your penis? Like there's all sorts of things that go into that, but that it often is based off of a specific structure. Although you can have a fetish about anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious on the receiving end of that, just based on like what you were sharing before, 
how do you know if someone is worshiping or fetishizing you? Yeah, I find that the worshiping tends to involve me as a human as well, right? And so they might be worshiping my butt or my feet or my breasts, but there is a connection to me as like a human. And I can tell that they're attracted to more than what they see. When I have felt really icky, and my like one of my examples is that within the Latin community, there's a term called mejorar la raza, which means to improve the race. And it is what it sounds like. It is white supremacy. And the idea that if you have babies with lighter skinned people, then you get lighter skinned babies. And that makes a better aesthetic. And I was once told, and, I, and I've also had other people say so in a less explicit way, but I was once told I'm the ideal, right? I am Latina. I speak Spanish. And I am, I just look like a white woman. And that was gross. It was gross to know that I was being desired because of racism, because of a desire to wipe out people of color within your own community. And that to me was distinct from someone just being like, oh, I love your curves that yes, are reminiscent of tropical bodies and also isn't that specific and doesn't have necessarily a, like a, a very negative, like insidious, is that the right word? But scary scary space that it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for for mentioning that. You know, I can't really speak to, I don't even really think I I have been, you know, fetishized or have an experience of being fetishized possibly, but maybe I, I, you know, in the times that I was, you know, I've been in a monogamous relationship now for like seven years. So like, I don't really have a lot of experience outside of that for the last seven years. And, and before that, I don't think I was as clued in to paying attention to people's, um, perceptions of me uh, in that you know more nuanced regard so my like my lived experience around like noticing the differences is maybe online a little bit like i feel like there's a little bit of uh, especially on this is so random but like especially on tiktok like my videos on tiktok have like hit the like gay men side of tiktok and so like i get a lot of like objectifying comments on especially especially on that that platform you know, it's like water for ducks back for me. I don't really put too much stock into it, but I can imagine and just like envision like someone who experiences that like quite often for, you know, for their whole life, it would be pretty, pretty like, again, I can't speak from a lived experience, but like that'd be pretty like full on, like pretty and in person. detrimental. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yes. so, so that's like my only like real, like if I can conceptualize like my experience of, of being like fetishized is like, I, I feel like, you know, and I can kind of tell when like the comment is a little bit more you know, fetishizing than it is like trying to engage with the content that I'm putting out there. So that's um, interesting. And that, that, and then, you know, then we, that the whole online space as well, it's a little bit different, right? Because there's, you know, what, how are we choosing to portray ourselves online? Like are we exaggerating certain things about ourselves to, you know, to maybe feed into idealized, standardized ideas of, you know, beauty. And I often think about, you know, oftentimes what pops into a lot of people's heads is, is especially like the guys that I talk to anyway, is like, oh, you know, they'll start shaming women for posting up their bodies online. And I go, mate, all the gym bros that you follow are doing the exact same thing as well. They're playing into, you know, this idealized idea of like the masculine or the male kind of body. 
so there's like a yeah i feel like there's a the online space creates a bit of a different experience of worshiping and, and fetishization and, and maybe mm-hmm. even that the and the anonymity that comes with it as well kind of i would argue maybe that it would like lean towards more the fetishization piece because it's quite hard to like build a you know it's all parasocial relationships but it's like a bit harder to like humanize someone in the online way than it is maybe in an in-person interaction i don't know what your thoughts are on that at the very least problematic forms of objectification like one of the essays i read or books that i read recently was talking about objectification as something that is neutral more or less in that like we all engage in objectification when we're seeing someone sexually as much as we can love them we are still objectifying them there's a sense of like creating a, a sort of meaning but there's a difference between that and dehumanizing them at the same time and i do think that the internet lends itself to the dehumanization of people when we objectify them i was actually expecting you to say like american women because oh right americans don't recognize that we all have accents and they get very excited oh, about non-american so english speaking accents you're very correct actually now that i think back to my time i actually lived in america for a couple of years so Yes, I do remember being fetishized as an Australian, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you for just jogging my memory for that experience. Yeah, I get that also the the gay TikTok, but I was just like, oh, that's exactly where I just assumed you were going there. (laughs) Yeah. And my partner, for example, is like also experiences, right? Because he is, he speaks English beautifully, but he's from Mexico. So he has an accent in English that is not American. And he's got like long, dark, curly hair and like light brown skin, right? And so, you know, that's sort of the way that some women approach him. It's very clear that they're excited by whatever for them is the other about him. And yeah, I think it like it just, it happens. I think for people of color, it happens all the time in person. Um, I think that, like you said, online, right? We get messages and what have you. On dating sites, it can be quite intense and i imagine that it's it's different for white men in most spaces unless they are in a country where they are in fact the minority but if you have an accent and you're being heard if you have an accent that's not standard for where you are and you're being heard then i think that would then create another space for that to occur especially like i've heard that's pretty bad like not pretty bad really awful in like the non-monogamous space when couples are looking for um a third and that if they're looking for a third person and they're a white couple and they're looking for a person of color, like, or that just people of color, black women by themselves on those sites. I remember reading one article where she was just like, I get, I got like a hundred messages overnight. It's like, I cannot imagine the emotional exhaustion that comes from receiving a hundred messages from people that are hungry to experience you. And that is objectification in a dehumanizing way. Yeah. Yeah. I spoke to someone on my podcast. Her name is Lauren, Lauren Violet, and she was talking about like her experience of like being a quote unquote unicorn in that regard. And, and we spoke about the equivalent for like, you know, maybe a, a especially in like cuckolding settings, maybe a black man being the quote unquote bull. And so the, and, and, you know, she was speaking about like threesome settings. She often gets propositioned by a lot of couples who see her as just like a toy essentially, rather than as like a human being. Similarly for like, you know, the the men that she was kind of like referencing, like again, being treated as just like a stand-in penis rather than like a whole entire person that's attached to that penis. 
So I appreciate you bringing that up. And I remember what I was going to say before I was, um, I've had, I've spoken to a few trans folks on my podcast and they have also shared with me like, you know, they're very much either. And they have to, something that they, they're vigilant about is like, is this person attracted to me out of a fetish? Because, because mm-hmm. yeah. Or is it, is it genuine? And, and something that I, I have seen online as well is like the, like pornography search results for like, you know, Pornhub's published theirs and like other companies like publish theirs. And, you know, the, what are the countries that has like the highest prevalence of like searching for transgender pornography is the United States and specifically mm-hmm. in, and, you know, by the States. Southern States. Yeah. It's, which is like mm-hmm. also the highest in rhetoric of like, you know, anti-trans and transphobia. Yes. And so it's just like, that's fascinating to me right but a part of it's like not surprising but part of it is also pretty no. fascinating the same politicians who make the laws to restrict liber- like the rights of people end up then being found out to be the practitioners of it so those who are really hardcore against sex worker rights end up they you know, surfaces pictures of them with sex workers and those who are really anti like drag you find drag pictures of them in college. And then those who are against like trans experiences are having sex with trans, generally trans women. Cause that's what you end up finding. A lot of the trans searches are about trans women. It seems to be like, if you experience it and you're ashamed about it, then you try and create legislation around it. That then creates like a more structural problem. It's a very weird. <laughs> yeah. Shame and concept. projection, right? Like it's the, yes. the shame of experiencing it. So projecting outwards, I often, I often think that when people like who is the loudest, who are the loudest people, you know, that are creating, you know, so much noise around certain things. It's like, oh, maybe there's some projection going on there. Um, yes. Yeah. Something like and I think about like all the legislators who, you know, legislated against gay marriage. It turns out they were having affairs with, you know, men on the side, you know, like that, that's, that's a very common, it's almost like a, a meme even like it's almost such a trope for Republican, you know, legislators specifically, you know, so there's, yeah, it's just a, it's an interesting and, and yeah, not super beneficial, yeah, you know, phenomenon that's happening. And, and it speaks to the, like the importance of actually dealing with the things that bring you shame, right? Because in their cases, their shame is causing real life harm to millions of other people. Like their inability to come to terms with the fact that they are attracted to X gender or attracted to X type of whatever, then leads to them trying to control the lives of everyone else to not have access to the things like, like just go to therapy or whatever form of healing modality that you find good. <laughs> but why, why project harm onto so many Hey there, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to chime in here with a plug for my online men's course. It's called Outperform a Porn Star. It goes for six weeks and it's all about experiencing multiple orgasms, overcoming any uh, sexual dysfunctions, reframing your whole performance mindset around sex to be more pleasure-oriented, We talk about communicating with your partner, being a sexual leader, and all of this amazing stuff. So if you're interested in learning how to outperform a porn star, head to my website, www.cam-fraser.com. Let's get back to this episode. Yeah, and I guess that's a a nice segue into like the work that 
you do with people, which is, you know, overcoming those stories and the, the shame and like connecting back in with their bodies. So what is like, what is like the first step, I guess, in, in terms of doing that is, you know, is there something that you start with? Yeah. So if someone is open to having multiple sessions, I, you know, I prefer that because then it's easier to dig deep. Otherwise I'll just kind of like, here's a bunch of resources, go look them up. (laughs) (laughs) It becomes like a a very big rush to, to get through. But if they are willing, I ask them to share their stories. And that tends to be the first session, right? Where like, what brought you here? What, what made a shift for you right now? And then the second session, I work them through my, you are enough love interrogating your narrative workshop. And I ask them to think about what is a statement that brings them pain? What is, and a short one, right? Because it's easy to go, well, this time, what have you in 1998? (laughs) Like, no, what is the thing that you believe that is harmful? And so, right, in my case, that was, I'm not Latina enough, or I'm not queer enough, or I take too long to orgasm, uh, things like that. These are all narratives that I've had to work through. And you say, okay, so I take too long to orgasm. Where did that come from? Who taught you there was a right amount of time to orgasm? What messages did you receive? Was it from friends, television, partners? And then really thinking about, okay, maybe this person said something or you read something or there can be a difference between whether someone, like in your case, is explicitly experiencing bullying around a topic or they're just getting all these messages that no one has directly put on them, but exist around them. And so we identify that difference. Like if it's someone who said this to you, like, do you think that their opinion in this situation is like valid? Does it make sense to keep it? Can you return that message to them? Not like literally, but is it, you can, you will, you know what? I actually don't agree with you on a lot of shit. Like <laughs> maybe I don't need to think that your opinion on this is worthwhile keeping. And then we go through evidence to the contrary. And so I have them explicitly write examples that disprove the narrative that they are holding onto. Uh, this is particularly good in like partner work as well. And like whether or not you're feeling that your partner is caring or likes you or respects you or that you two are engaging in, in some sort of reciprocation with one another. And then we create a new narrative. And I think of it kind of like affirmations, but they're really well dug out. Right? It's, it's like narrative work. And they are realistic in that you create a narrative, a new story that doesn't feel ridiculous for you to say. So I'm not going to say I orgasm quickly because that's just ludicrous. That's not true. <laughs> I, take a, I take my time. But I don't need to say I take too long. Instead, I can say, I take my time to orgasm and I get to enjoy that time. There is no rush. So something that is legitimately empowering for that human. And we use that technique throughout a lot of our sessions. I try and use it in like a subliminal way so that they practice it because it's useful across their life. And I really do love when I see it come up again. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that. And it always sounds like, it reminds me of like, cognitive behavioral therapy a little bit as well like that evidence to the contrary like what's a new story you can tell yourself yeah i do something similar with my clients and and a lot of the guys that i work with it's always not always but like a very common theme is like i'm not man enough or i'm not masculine enough or i'm not manly enough my partner or for the people that i am attracted to and so 
part of that work, I suppose, with them is like broadening their perception of masculinity, firstly, because there's this very like rigid, narrow definition of what they subscribe to as what it means to be a quote unquote real man. Uh, so like we we kind of open that box up and broaden their horizons with regards to like, you know, masculinities rather than masculinity being this monolithic thing. And then it's like from there they go, they go, oh now I have a bit more freedom to like play around with like what I do and how I show up as a man in the world. And then we find something that like feels really good for them. And and then we just affirm that essentially just like great, cool. That's good, man. Like I don't I don't have to tell you how to be a man. Let's figure out what makes you feel like a man. And if it's not hurting anyone, yourself, then great. Let's let's do more of that, you know. And let's let, how can I support you in doing more of that? And that's typically what I'll I'll talk to my clients about is like what makes you feel quote unquote masculine. And I don't I'm not prescriptive with that language. I don't say this is what masculinity is or this is what masculine energy is. I really hate people that prescribe. And so I say like you tell me man what what do you do that makes you feel masculine if it's fucking chopping wood and being a lumberjack or if it's like sitting down and meditating or whatever it is i don't you know and then i get them to be like okay well let's feed back into that and how can i support you in doing more of that if that's what makes you feel really good so yeah i i definitely feel like there's a, a resonance there with like that approach of creating a new story and just reaffirming that and and it's interesting you're right how that like pops up again in in kind yes. of certain ways when i get them when i get these guys to like explore their body for example you know doing some self pleasure practices maybe connecting to their body a bit more there'll be a certain part of their body or a certain type of touch that is like that story pops up again oh it's not manly for me to touch myself in that particular way if i'm really slow and sensual and oh that's not masculine enough okay man interesting stories popping up again let's unpack it why is that who told you that where's that come from is it true most of the time no in fact, all the time, no. Uh, so, so again, it's a, there's like a little permission piece to be like, you know, that's okay. And then create a new story and then reaffirm. So I, I yeah, definitely like that. Yeah. No, yeah. And I think happens a lot. It, yeah. And I love uh, masculinity is such a juicy topic that I love. I wish I had more clients who like that was their narrative. Cause I love doing that work and pushing back. And it is, it has been fascinating because when it's just on social media, you know, and you're like, men can X, Y, Z. And then men will come in and be like, how dare you define masculinity? It's like, that's that's literally being like, men can do what they want. And <laughs> the, <laughs> the pushback is like, you're defining masculinity in this way. And it's like, no, it, it's just recognizing that there's so many ways that masculinity can, can exist. And it doesn't have to be that prescriptive, rigid thing. Have you seen Feminist on Cell Block Y? Oh, someone just shared it with me, the page and and with Richie Rosita. Yes, so I have, uh, so I have it, and it's on my list of things to like really dive into. I have like a catalog of like accounts that I really want to spend some time on. So just familiar with it, but I would love to hear anything else that you have to say about it because I'm I'm a big fan already. Yeah, so Richie Rosita was incarcerated at the time that this was being filmed and he's now out, he has an Instagram, folks can follow him. He's a abolitionist, right? Anti-prisons. And he started a program, I believe based off of Bell Hooks's work where he was taking men who are incarcerated, right? And so in, this is a population where masculinity is often quite important in the way that it looked for them growing up. And he helps them identify like, what does masculinity mean to you? And how do you define it? How do you 
know if you are or are not man enough and is this in fact been helpful for you or has it been harmful? And how has it dehumanized you? And how has it made it so that you're living a shittier existence and the people around you are living shittier existences? What I really liked about the film is that they didn't, it, it wasn't a, what was it called? Rose-colored glasses, right? These men were like, okay, but this is all nice and dandy. We're in here, we're in this workshop. But when we get back on the streets, if I do not portray masculinity the way that I have been taught to, I can be killed, right? If I teach my son that you can be whatever you want to be and that you do not need to be macho, you don't need to be these things, like my kid's going to get beat up because it's just, it's a matter of survival. And I think that those are such important questions. And obviously not all men are under threat of uh, violence in all communities, but that is right why in particular effeminate uh, queer men have experienced so much violence is that they're they are seen as a threat and people want to destroy them and harm them. And I just, I think overall, the film does a really great job of speaking to the nuance that yes, we can, I do want, I want more healthy masculinities. I want masculinities to let men feel authentic and cherished and interested in engaging with other humans in ways that are healthy and beautiful and forwarding while also not disrespecting or um, disregarding the fact that this is hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate you you mentioning that because something that I have noticed with a lot of guys when we start to do this work around masculinity is not necessarily like a fear of violence. I recognize that that's true for, for those men in the documentary and for some men in, in particular, but, but a fear of ostracization, a fear of like not having friends, a fear of like, well, my mates are going to disown me because I'm not this because I'm not living up to like, and, and I, I have been there. So the, I, the reason why I say that is because like there was a time where I was drinking quite a lot and was adhering to like what is stereotypical young Australian larrikin type of personality. And that was like what I did. In fact, I actually, to circle back around to something we, we shared at the beginning, like I played on that as a character essentially to have more sexual experiences with women when I was in America because that was what I was being fetishized for now that I really think about it. Right. So I did drink more and I did play into like this Australian personality. And my friends would, you know, when I came back to Australia, I would say, you sound more Australian having lived in America for the last six months than you did ever living here because I was right, really putting on this personality. I partly out of fear as well because I wanted to fit in. And that was the way that I fit in was like being accepted for being really Australian. But I, when I kind of did some self work and personal development and I, I went and saw a narrative therapist, that was, you know, the therapy that I did was narrative therapy. And I started recognizing like, well, that's not how I want to show up as a person in this world. It's not how I want to be a man in this world. And so there's a period of time where I felt quite isolated and quite lonely because my, the people in my life had been, I had fostered relationships with them from a place of thinking this is how I was supposed to show up as a man. So when I started showing up differently, they weren't supportive of that. A lot of my friends weren't supportive of that at the time. Um, and so there was a period of time where I had to, I kind of had to let go of some friendships, some male friendships, um, because they were not healthy and they weren't, they were fostered on drinking a lot of alcohol essentially. And that's not what I was doing anymore. So, and thankfully after a period of loneliness, there was like a opportunity to make new friends. And the men in my life now are really supportive of, of like exploring masculinity and be, having those conversations and really opening up and being supportive in, in those regards. But I think that piece is very scary for a lot of guys because they're 
friendships and their relationships have been built on the like the mask of masculinity that they've been wearing for for a long time and so to do something different is to open themselves up to ridicule criticism ostracization isolation loneliness and in certain contexts violence and so mm-hmm. it's like a big yeah like that's a societal piece right yes. like yeah it's a it's the structures a, exist to maintain masculinity in this certain way yeah yeah and so there's fear yeah and i'm glad you bring up like the loneliness piece because it is again I, when i work with folks one of my favorite things to say is like healing is it painless and often can feel like a slap in the face like you <laughs> it can really suck and i think part of like redeveloping your understanding of masculinity is part of healing and you have to make a cognizant like a a thoughtful choice like am i ready to do this am i ready to lose friends am i ready to have to shift communities because if people aren't shifting with you and you can try and bring people along but if they're not shifting with you then you either revert back or you have to lose people and it's not always that easy. And you could have friends who are ride or die, right? Who are going to be with you and happily do all sorts of wacky things to protect you. But all of a sudden, if you wear nail polish, that's it. You're out. You know, like, <laughs> like I will help you cover up this crime, but how dare you show yeah, God up forbid. Yeah. in that nail polish? Or how dare you decide that, you know, I don't know, you want to grow some plants whatever things scare some folks out, but (laughs) it is an interesting concept because you think, okay, I don't want to lose this person who loves me so much and who will do anything for me. They'll do anything, but accept me in the ways that I am changing in the ways that I am embracing myself. And it can be easier to stay with what you know, but there's, there's so much available on the other side, if you're able to get there. But I do think that it's important to to name that it's not going to be easy. It's probably not going to be fun. It's going to suck for a while. And also there is good things to come. Yeah, there's pleasure to come. That's something that like has been instrumental in like my experience of like, it's like full body, you know, from full spectrum, subtle to intense, multi-orgasmic pleasure has been like my own experience of like just letting go of what I thought being masculine was and like, how a sexual man should look. And I found that was super limiting. I was limiting my experience. It was limiting my partner's experiences as well because I was like kind of imposing what sex should look like based on like this rigid idea of like what a man should do and what a woman should do in this context. And so it's like really letting go of that has been super yeah, powerful and profound for my transformation of my relationship with pleasure. And that's what I noticed with the men that I work with as well is like once they let go of like, Oh, if I do this, it's going to make me gay. Or if I do that, I'm going to be considered weak or whatever like their story is. Like once they are able to overcome that, like things switch for them and their relationship with their body just like starts to, you know, snowball in a positive direction and they do experience a lot more pleasure. So I'm curious, like, you know, with the people that you work with, once that, that kind of story has been not necessarily like, overcome because i feel like it's always there right that story for me about not being masculine enough still pops up in certain ways but once they've kind of got like an opportunity to navigate it and they feel pretty good with it what's then the is there a next step for like connecting in with their their body and maybe even exploring like pleasure as well so i'd say that so many people i work with 
pleasure isn't the big thing unless it's a, a sense of not being able to sit in the pleasure. But I wouldn't say that those are the narratives that most of the men I've spoken to have come to me with. There are other narratives about, well, yes and no, right? About who they're attracted to or what they enjoy. So I guess that is related to it. But I think what I do find is that personally, and I I get sad when people are limiting themselves around the types of pleasure that they'll enjoy because of the ways in which they're interpreting the acts and the actions. And so the way that you mentioned like the softness or the body parts, right? The idea that anal sex or anal play is gay, uh, nipple play is effeminate. But I do think that most of my clients, that isn't where their hangup is. So I've had that issue. I've, I've dealt with that issue more in my personal sex life where I've been like, oh no, <laughs> how do we think about this without me coaching you? Because that seems like a weird, yep. <laughs> a weird thing to bring in. But the clients who tend to find me there is something outside of the physical aspects that are concerning to them. They might be more willing to explore the physical than they are like their mental stimulation. Yeah. Okay. What, so what are some of those examples, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. And so I've had folks who come from like religious backgrounds and hangups about the idea that masturbation is wrong or the desire to engage in group sex or interest in people that aren't their spouses. And so just like, oh, you know, I'm attracted to X, Y, and Z. And because of the framework of monogamy, that means I'm bad or evil. Or I don't care for my wife or that's how they're going to interpret it type of things. Also attraction to women, regardless of their bodies. And so trans women with penises or, you know, often that is the part that people get the hang up on. So being attracted to women, regardless of their bodies, as opposed to being only attracted to trans women, which can be a fetish. But just the idea that like, yeah, I love women. And if I find out she's a penis, like, cool, I'm happy to play along. But does that then make me gay? And so then A, telling them like, no, because she's still a woman, but B, and so what? if this makes you queer, right? You're not gay because you're attracted to women. <laughs> like, so what? What is the narrative there then? Like, why is that so scary? Why is that so bad? And if you're able to like dismantle that thought that there's nothing wrong if it turns out I am queer, then it doesn't really matter what the body parts your partners have are because there's no negative connotation with it. And so those are the things that I think they're more cerebral, right? And it might impact like what kinds of play that you're willing to engage in and therefore what kinds of pleasure you're willing to access. And I think mental block is often what keeps people from experiencing pleasure. But yeah, once they start to undo those narratives, they then continue forth with their own physical pieces often. Although I would love to talk more about sex. I so rarely get to <laughs> get into the nitty gritty. Like I love when someone's like... <laughs> toys. And I'm like, let me pull out all these like things that I have and I can show you how to stimulate and I can show you this position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I get a lot of enjoyment from as well. Is, and that's what I try and do in most of my workshops is keep it like, you know, prop and demonstration oriented. Yeah. But yeah, I, I appreciate you you giving some of those examples and and you know, they resonate for some of my, my clients as well. If I think about some of the men that come to me with, with concerns, you know, like there's this idea that men should be masturbating in a certain way. Right. And mm -hmm. then, and then there's like also, not grinding. 
it's up and down. Yep. I've yep. heard and that like, oh, I grind. There's something wrong with me. And it's like, okay, but that brings you pleasure. So grind away. <laughs> I know. I know. And then, and then like, yeah. I, and there's something I often say to, to men as well is like, cause you know, big fear is like, oh, what if this means I'm gay? Right. Like a lot of internalized and some overt homophobia. And I say them often like, so what if sticking, you know, something up your butt made you gay is that yeah who cares there's nothing wrong being gay so it doesn't matter so but but like but I and it doesn't make you gay but it doesn't yeah, matter but if it doesn't it matter if it does yeah and and so it's so like that's that's a uh you know a piece of rhetoric that i'll use but like oftentimes that isn't enough right that that, that isn't the approach that i i will that's not the only approach that i'll have to take with with men that, that have that fear it is yeah important for them to unpack as well and and like i had to unpack that myself yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at my clock here. I'm mindful of time and, and what I want to do to like wrap up the, the conversation. Cause there's so many things that I wanted to drill down a bit deeper with you, but let me ask you this then, I suppose, what is some advice you have for people that do feel limited in their experience of pleasure, maybe because they have stories around it. What's like a piece of practical advice they can take away to start to work on that and start to like maybe exploring their pleasure a bit more. I do think it's helpful to engage in a combination of the cerebral and heart, uh, the heart work and the embodiment work. And so if you're unable to name the things that are fucking with you, you're probably not going to be able to move through them. I'm like a pretty big believer in naming, which is why we do the narrative work. But I try to invite people when it's in the embodied work to get in touch with their senses and to allow themselves to deepen their connection to specific senses as a way to explore their body. So it becomes less about this body part, that technique, or like that style of something and more what sense like uh, smells like make me feel excited. What smells make me feel grounded or calm? What type of texture do I like against this part of my skin or that part of my skin? Do I like scratches? Do I like the taste of something on my tongue? Like, you know, people talk about chocolate a lot, but salt, the salt of someone's sweat or your own bodily tastes, like your, your semen or what have you, or someone else's, whoever your partner is. And just like, really think about spending time feeling those items because it creates a curiosity and an exploration that is different from sexual goals of performance, right? It's like, it's not about performing. It's about experiencing. And so if you're, if you're having difficulty with the cerebral part, put that away and ground in the body. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I appreciate you, you bring it back to the body and love the idea of focusing on what it feels like, not what it looks like. That's a big, big part of like the the message that I want to put out into the world is like, stop worrying about what you look like and start focusing on what you feel like. So thank you for sharing that. I wanted to to bring up a little something just to, to close down. And I feel like this is you know relevant to what we were talking about. And I'm apologies, I didn't mention it before, but it just popped into my head as you were sharing. But it's sexual configurations theory by Sari Van Anders. 
love sexual communication theory. Yeah, cool. And the reason <laughs> why I bring it up is because you you mentioned something specifically about like you know one of your clients or an example of one of your clients like being attracted to women, but what if they're a trans woman? They've got a penis. Like what I really appreciate about like sexual configurations theory and the way that I understand it is like asking questions like, are you attracted to women? And like, if you are like, what is it about women that you're attracted to? Is it, are you attracted to their anatomy? Are you attracted to vulvas? Right. Because that's not attractive femininity. Yeah. You're attracted to like femininity, the feminine aesthetic, right? Like what is it about women, right. That you are attracted to. And similarly for like men, if you're attracted to men, like, are you attracted to penises? Because like, I often hear from straight women that like oh, penises are gross, you know, yes. or like foreskin's gross, like whatever it is. Like, and it's like, there's a little bit of shamey. Gross is a little okay. bit harsh, but like, yeah. they're weird, right? They're like these random things that hang from the body. Right. And and I've heard <laughs> things from like alpha bro type guys that like say really, you know, they say shit about women's, you know, mm-hmm. vaginas and vulvas, right? And they often, you know, I'm thinking, I won't mention names, but like there's, there's guys out there that like say on podcasts very regularly, like, oh, like vaginas are disgusting. Vulvas are disgusting. I'm like, mate, you are like espousing all this stuff about being straight and how like, you know, how much you actually really love women. And then you're saying this and I'm like, you know, you're inadvertently championing sexual configurations theory, you know, like there's this idea of you know, exploring the, the reasons why. So I don't know. I just wanted to put that in there because it just like popped into my mind as you were talking and I wanted to just throw it in there just to, to see if you had any extra things you wanted to share about that. I mean, I think it's a great exercise to do your own mapping of that and not just for like who you're attracted to, but your own gender and like your partnering style. It's just, it's just a lot of fun to think through these ideas in a 3D way, which is what Sari and her team created the opportunity for. And I've had cis straight students been like, oh, Like this helps me understand other people better and help me understand myself. Like you said, like, what is it that I'm in fact attracted to? Like what matters to me? And there, therefore what might not matter to me and where is there more fluidity that's possible? But yes, I, when I heard, I heard her do a keynote on it and I was part of a group of people who kind of wanted to go ask her to marry us afterwards. (laughs) So fangirl pretty hard. Yeah. I, um, I fanboy after Sari as well. So, well, well, I thank you for indulging me just to share that last little thing there. Yeah, I wanted to chuck it in. So thank you. And thank you just for sitting down and chatting with me as well. I know know, it's getting late over there on the other side of the world. I'm just getting here to lunch. So, you know, I'm really appreciative of you setting aside the time. It's been really lovely, actually. So thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to speak. I know. I know. How good. Uh, Well, enjoy the rest of your night and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Men's Sex and Pleasure podcast. If you find value from this content, then I encourage you to consider becoming a patron on my Patreon account. You can find the link for that in the description below. You have access to a whole bunch of perks, including behind the scenes podcast footage, as well as pre-release YouTube videos and patron-only writing, as well as the opportunity to have your name either shown in a YouTube video or read out in a thank you during the podcast. So like I said, if you enjoy this content and you'd like to support it and support me, then head to the link in the show notes below and consider becoming a patron.
Thank you. <laughs>